clubhouse. My boy. He needs me now more than ever, and there is nothing I can do in here. Trapped behind these walls. I have... I gotta get out of here. I've gotta be brave. I have a Bible study. A service for the faithful who are interested in... Exodus. Welcome to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're discussing episode two of season two, Speak of the Devil. And be sure to stick around afterwards when we're done with tonight's episode. We have an exclusive interview with JT Tarmel himself, actor Frank Hartz. Frank was so great to speak with. He really took us behind the scenes on his character and his own feelings. JT has quite a challenging storyline ahead of him. And uh, it was great to sit down with Frank and talk about what that all feels like as as an actor in this world that we're living in and portraying these uh, stories on TV. But it wasn't all, you know, super serious either. We actually had a great conversation, too, about uh, being Catholic and beliefs and growing up with an Irish mother. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a great mix. He was a really fun guest. Yeah, it was really fun. But before we get started, if you could also check out the Spotify playlist that we have created, it has some good music from the show that can help you bridge the days in between the episodes i love these playlists we have one going for yellowstone that you've created for the yes. stand yes uh boulder free radio zone and uh now for prodigal son so yeah yes. guys the playlists have the same name as the podcast so it's easy to find so i'm pretty much a grandpa so i was able to go on spotify <laughs> wear my glasses yeah and, and press After the you buttons. got the kids off your lawn right yeah <laughs> damn clouds yeah and I, I pushed the buttons on the playlist and then i was able to find it so it's a it's pretty user-friendly, guys. So definitely go check it out. It's a nice way just to kind of add mood add mood to your day. Yeah, some murder me vibes. Why not? That's 2021's vibe. Yeah, and I definitely pulled in some songs from season one. So it is a work in progress. So it's not just season two. Oh, uh, yeah. And it does lead off with I Feel Love because I think that's going to be like my anthem for 2021. <laughs> Yeah, and I, you know, and I appreciate you did some gift work. I did. I sent out the clarion call last week's episode, and you uh, you stepped up to the plate. So I appreciate you getting me some Tom Payne dancing to "I Feel Love" gift. You're welcome. Just a reminder: if you're checking us out for the first time, we are assuming that you've watched tonight's episode. So one, we're going to talk about things that happened. So if you haven't watched it and you don't want spoilers, you should pause this now and go watch the episode, and then come back and listen to us. And two, we're not going to really go step by step. We're not going to step-by-step recap the episode for you. We're going to go a little bit deeper into what the stories mean, what what the developments mean, what we think may happen, give some predictions. If you've ever read any of the written reviews we do at Pop Culture Review, our, our sister written site to the clubhouse, those are step-by-step. You don't actually even need to watch the episodes of those shows. Uh, you could just read the recaps. I like psychological thrillers. I like, I'm more about messing with the brain than seeing lots of uh, viscera and gore. I like when the religion aspect gets brought into it. I am a converted heathen to Catholic who has now become a lapsed Catholic. I say that I'm a retired Catholic. That's a fancy way to say lapsed Catholic. So churches are interesting because I find them just beautiful. 
and also super creepy and full of mystery. I'm that guy that goes to Europe and spends all of his time going to the churches, the old churches of Europe. Oh, that's me. But I love stained glass windows. I love the stonemasonry. There's just something about it. It calls to me. It draws me there. But it also kind of also scares the bejesus out of me. Just the thing. From the episode standpoint, yes, I love a cerebral thriller. Mess with my mind. Make me look over my shoulder. Make me want to run up the stairs really fast because, you know, like the demon's chasing me. Because, yeah, I'm 42 years old and that's still a thing. But I really enjoy things that mess with your mind, make you think, you know, push the envelope in terms of like, is this reality? Is this not reality? Because being a a retired, lapsed, bad Catholic, I don't really think exorcisms are a thing. That's an important conversation to have to understand where everyone is coming from in this episode. If you believe in exorcisms, then you very much appreciate like JT and Gil's reaction to this case. If you are a skeptic uh, like Malcolm, presumably like Martin, presumably probably like Adresa, who favors science over religion, you probably find this all kind of silly and kind of a lot of hokum. You know, the same way we would scoff at people who maybe get caught up in cults, people like Malcolm probably scoff at people who are religious. You believe in, you know, 2,000-year-old make-believe kind of thing. But I think the way you come down on exorcisms, the way this episode hits you, does this spook you? Does this make you jump? when you're in a church think really comes down to what your feeling is what your religious beliefs are this episode just reminded me very much of another show that i'm uh near and dear to my heart is evil there was a couple of exorcisms in season one of evil anytime you bring in an exorcism i'm just like it's spooky it's weird it's it's a little otherworldly because that was definitely a show that i was grateful that i got to watch at like noon on a tuesday (laughs) as opposed to like 10 o'clock on a thursday like everybody else definitely a show that was hard to watch at nighttime to, to be sure and, and, you know, there's such a fine line between being effective scare, uh, a show that makes you pull back the shower curtain, and being cheesy. I think uh, the line that movies and TV shows that deal with religious, religious genre horror is very, very fine. You know, it's very easy to cross over and cheesy, but a show like Evil did it well. Movies like The Exorcist, you know, did it uh, fantastically well. The Exorcist is what's warming up horror movies. I saw it when I was seven years old. <laughs> My two favorite horror movies are probably, uh, well, I, I mentioned Sons of the Lambs last week, um, but I don't know that's straight horror. I keep referring to that no, as horror. It's, that's, not. it's not. It's, it's not. It's a psychological th- thriller is yeah, what I would, is, I would label it as. Right. And I think I think when you get down to it, like psychological thriller is my kind of horror. But I think yeah. except in the same vein, Rosemary's uh, Rosemary's Baby uh, remains a movie that still creeps me the fuck out and chills me to my bone and the exorcist the exorcist i think in everyone accepts this as a horror movie genre i think the exorcist remains my kind of go-to standard it's exquisite really in terms of like a horror movie (laughs) it's lush Uh, there's there's lots of layers there because of the religious aspect because religion is a complicated thing in our lives you know there are certain cultures there are certain countries where religion is not a topic at all and there are other countries and cultures where religion is just so interwoven into your life you never stop to question whether or not you believe in america it has a very complicated history and relationship with our people because there are so many different beliefs and so many people who don't believe in any aspect of it you know they believe in science science is their religion so it's always it always makes for interesting bedfellows when you see it portrayed on tv and i think i think prodigal son for a show that doesn't do this topic 
often, I think, did it really well tonight. Yeah, I agree. Last week, I think we kind of introduced a fun little game of the week's crime, the week's motives, the week's weapons. I don't know what the week's weapon is. I don't know what to put down for the murder tally. For me, it's the Hans von Gersdorf's 1517 reference guide, Field Surger, a field book of surgery. Is that the is that the murder weapon? I have the glass shard that uh, Professor Shaw was attempting to use on Malcolm. Nice. And I, I mean, who doesn't love a glass shard? You know, it's going to shank love- him. <laughs> <laughs> but a book that teaches you step by step the 44 uh, precise places to cut a human being to most effectively and efficiently bleed them dry. I think that counts as a murder weapon. I'd say so. It was pretty sinister. I mean, LeVar Burton has always taught us uh, about the power of reading. He never covered this book on reading Rainbow, but maybe he should have. Take a trip. It's in a book. It's on the reading rainbow. Total side tangent. I don't know how I feel about LeVar Burton hosting Jeopardy next. Yeah. I know because his name is in the running for it. He definitely has the personality. He has the really smart uncle vibe that like Alex Trebek had. Yeah. I have grown to love LeVar Burton more like a Mr. Rogers type than a Alex Trebek type. I'd rather see him do like like a LeVar's neighborhood, like Mr. LeVar's neighborhood kind of show. I feel bad for whoever has to step in after Alex Trebek because it's he's an institution and it's just going to be hard to kind of move forward. For sure. You know who's someone who probably should not step into Alex Trebek's shoes? Friar Pete. Yeah, no. We got our first introduction of uh, Christian Borley in this new role that's going to be recurring this season. Uh, what do, what's your hot take? Oh my god, I need to know about these Friar Flayings. I, I'm intrigued. I'm definitely intrigued. I want to know more. I want to see more. He gives off enough of a creepy vibe that I'm like, hmm, what's your backstory? Most people that know Christian Borley probably know him because of Smash, where he was a big old song and dance man. But even then, there's there's something about him, about Christian Borley, that is eerie. He's got really expressive eyes, but they're kind of set back. They're kind of a little shadowed, his eyes are. And he's got an inflection that can turn to sinister really quickly. From that standpoint, seeing him play someone who's a religious zealot who because of his extremist views is is defrocked and thrown out of his religious order and then turns to serial killing i got all of that in just the few moments we spent with him in this episode tonight the eyes when you said the eyes i'm like here nodding by myself i'm like yes definitely his there's something very piercing about his eyes and that timber of his voice that that could be very sinister like i could only imagine like what he was doing to his victims with that voice if you are a fan of old horror, Lon Chaney is probably uh, a person you know. You know, he was the go-to guy who played, like, every horror creature back in the, I know, Jesus, probably the 20s in, like, the silent film era. He had these eyes that would just go so big and just kind of almost mesmerize you and bore into your soul. And Christian Borley, while not having the large eyes that Lon Chaney had, has, has a look that like we'll just stare daggers into your soul i mean they really set it up especially with the ending with the the bible study group and the the exodus metaphors i I, obviously he's sticking around i think there was just enough touch 
of humor, hiding behind thinly veiled, like, bloodlust. And just oddly, he looks like he's wearing a Franciscan robe to me. A little backstory. Sheila and I go back 25 years to our Catholic high school days where we attended uh, St. Francis Preparatory High School in Fresh Meadows, Queens, New York, largest Catholic high school in the country. Shout out to the Lil Terriers. Woo, woo, woo. Uh, St. Francis Prep, as you may have guessed from the name, was uh, run by the Franciscan brothers. Fra- uh, Friar Pete, I mean, Friar is is a name for a brother. He has a very Franciscan vibe about him. Probably not someone teaching at the school, but maybe, you know, in one of like the, the villas back in Italy. You never know. It is New York. So he could have taken a stint. Maybe he's a student teacher. Who knows? Yes, not to besmirch our old high school, but, you know, to my knowledge, they never employed a serial killer. They could put that in the SFP grad news that we get periodically. Yeah. (laughs) So just to circle back, uh, I believe in exorcisms. And not that I necessarily believe that the devil possesses people, but I believe in the disorder the way Malcolm defines it. I believe it's called possession trance disorder. I am not possessed by a devil, but I I identify as such. I think there are people, I think this is a whole field of like mental health issues. I think there are Normans uh, running around in the world. I think there are people who are just kind of broken by society. And eventually their, their brains just kind of snap sounds too dismissive. But there's a fragility, I think, for some people where they become swayed and, you know, their subconscious comes too close to the surface and begins to uh, feed them bad, bad juju. Yeah. And and it, so it takes the form of things like uh, possession. I don't know that I necessarily believe in, you know, the power of Christ compels you kind of stuff where you have to talk to Latin to like sate the beast. This this episode really worked for me. I, I, uh, I really was kind of bought into the entire vibe. Of the thing. And it was in a church. I mean, there was desanguination in a church. You can't get enough desanguination in this world for me. Uh, I, I think it's a I think it's a word people don't use nearly enough. And uh in when you have Adresa up on a on, up on a scaffolding talking about the you know precision, the precise way which someone was blood dry, what better way to start your Tuesday? I'm here for it. Let's get into the actual, our little character study here. I think, as always, we probably should start with Malcolm. He's oddly aggressive with Gil. I think it's not a secret that Malcolm doesn't really believe in any of this stuff that they're dealing with. You know, I mean, when he says kind of tongue-in-cheek, obviously the killer is the devil as it goes to the the title card. Yeah, he's doing that all with all uh, heavy doses of sarcasm. That being said, he's oddly aggressive with Gil when Gil kind of backs down to the bishop when the bishop doesn't want to reveal uh the exorcism records and and that kind of tips gill off that there's something wrong with malcolm that malcolm is not okay with whatever is happening in malcolm's brain there's no obvious trauma here for gill to be pointing to but he knows malcolm well enough to think that there's something going on here is this something that gill is going to sideline malcolm over do you think we know he's suffering from ptsd from endicott and cleaning up the murder but gill doesn't know any of that uh, does Gil sideline him because he sees him acting too aggressively? Or does Gil let him keep working? Because Gil has a history of using Malcolm and using Malcolm's peculiar 
peculiarities to further his career insofar as solving murders goes. You know, Gil has really become to rely on Malcolm. I want to say it's a crutch, but he uses him excessively, even when Malcolm is in a bad place, to help solve these crimes in his major crimes division. And I don't want people to write to me and say I'm being mean to Gil or whatever. I believe Gil cares about Malcolm, but I think it is a very fair criticism to say that Gil uses Malcolm a lot. So I, I want to throw it out to you uh, and, and anyone listening. Definitely chime in. Let me know what you think. Does Gil like actually stop and find out what's wrong with Malcolm here at some point if this continues? Or do you think he's just going to kind of let it ride? I think he's going to let it ride because you. I think you hit something close to home about Gil is that he uses is not the right word. He brings Malcolm in despite Malcolm's mental state, right? So Malcolm could be a, in a manic state um, and, and that tends to be when Malcolm does some of his best work. So I think he's going to let it go for now, but I think he's going to keep probing because he asks a very pointed question. He goes, kid, what's going on inside that head of yours? And that's kind of as direct as I've heard Gil to this point. So I think he's he's getting a hinky that something odder is going on, but I think he's going to keep it going because Malcolm does pull it together to, you know, get the bad guy in the end. He figures it out despite what's going on. Even in this episode, he's like, you know, what's going on in your head? Malcolm kind of dissembles and Gil kind of moves on and asks him for the profile. I mean, he's like, all right, well, then, you know, you're not going to answer question A, then at least, you know, do me, you know, do me a solid and give me the profile, which is the reason you're here. And and Malcolm does. He does pull it together and he gives a pretty good profile. Yeah. Gil as father figure and Gil as boss gets a little too blurred sometimes for my liking. I like Gil a lot. I like the character. I like the father figure role that he serves, that he fills in for Malcolm. But in some ways, he is super manipulative of Malcolm in a way that a parent can be, for sure. But in a way also that a father would never be with their child. Malcolm has two fathers. He has Gil and he has Martin, right? They're, they're, he has his literal father and his father figure. They both at times manipulate Malcolm for their own ends in a way that churns my stomach because Malcolm doesn't even always catch that he's being manipulated. Sometimes he does, especially when it comes to Martin because he's very on guard with it. But that almost makes Gil a little more sinister than Martin because I don't think Malcolm is nearly as aware of it when Gil is playing him for his own benefits. It's just it's just a it's just a character study that I I feel like is there if you if you kind of drill down through the casework he blends the line too too much between boss and father figure. Yeah, it's like he uses it to his advantage when he needs it. Can we talk about Norman for a second? Please. Oh, okay. First of all, I jumped a mile when he screamed, "The power of Christ compels you!" Jumped because I was listening with headphones. I jumped a mile in my chair. The thin line that I was talking about, right? The, when they're doing this very much like psycho lead up with his mother and Norman and I'm ready, mother. I was like, what are we doing here, guys? What is happening? But then once they're in the room, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah, like Norm, Norman is batshit crazy and is dangerous for sure. But Norman tells Malcolm that he's got evil inside of him, right? And he uses that demonic voice that he he turns in the piano stool and there's creaking and it just his voice changes into this very deep timber of his voice can he be discounted because his demon right the demon inside of him also took credit for killing father reyes i think malcolm would say to 
you know, JT or Gil or Danny or anyone where he's working with them, where he doesn't want them, where he doesn't want them worrying about, you know, that he's got a, a demon inside him or a killer inside him. I think he would say, well, obviously he's just mentally ill and he's got this, you know, trans possession disorder. But the fact that Jonah also suffering from this possession, who doesn't know Norman, who doesn't have anything in common with Norman, also talks about seeing it inside of Malcolm and seeing the darkness inside of him that he he has it too, that final scene. That shit's got to make you stop and, and wonder what exact vibe is Malcolm giving off to these other people. You know, the, 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 the serial killer Dar that, or, or murder Dar that he's giving, uh, that he's giving off. It's last week's episode where he says, am I giving off a vibe? Is it my hair? Yeah. He said he wasn't giving off murdery vibes. It was last week. That's where I got all the murdery stuff that I was like, you know, joking about last week. That continued this week. And, and Malcolm is a self reflective guy, even if he doesn't let on to other that he's being self-reflective it's got to start adding up like what and and norman takes him by surprise he he react he takes the bait less when it's jonah at the end saying it to him but when norman says it to him you know malcolm almost shifts into a oh now i've got questions for you kind of mode because i wasn't sure if norman even knew that father reyes was killed at that point I don't think that's something that his mother would have tried to tell him before. So that's why I was I was a little confused as to why or how the demon knew or the, the voice, the voice that came out of Norman. I'm not going to say it's necessarily a demon, but taking credit for it because I didn't think that Norman knew about it. The show is kind of threading like there is something extraordinary happening here right. that there is. I think the idea is that the same demon that takes possession of Norman when the salt line is breached the way that malcolm does the idea is that it's the same spirit that then kind of is inside of jonah at the end we're saying norman has this one disorder and we're saying jonah is acting the way jonah's acting because of the lead poisoning but you can't discount though that there is this underlying theme of these supernatural occurrences that know stuff about Malcolm. That's if we're taking it on face value. The question is, is Malcolm imagining what Jonah is saying to him when Jonah is in the throes of his possession? At the end, the same, is it in the same vein where he's, he's having the dream where Sister Agnes turns into Ainsley? Or is it straight value, like in Jonah in the throes of his dementia, the lead poisoning-based or possession-esque, you know, behavior at the end, is he actually channeling into some kind of darkness and sensing it, smelling it on Malcolm? It's more fun to think it's the latter, so that's the one I'm going with. Malcolm is putting off some kind of murdery vibe, some kind of murdery pheromones into the world <laughs> that, that like-minded individuals are picking up on. Let, let's stay with the Norman scene for a second. This seemed reckless even for Malcolm. Is it because... Again, he doesn't actually believe in any of these things. Remember, JT is crossing himself and, and you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and before he goes into the church, JT is on board with everything that's being set up here. He believes in, in what he's seeing there. So for him, the idea of crossing the salt line when they're so intricately laid out and you know, obviously there's some kind of power uh, of the lines that's keeping the Norman demon at bay. The idea of breaching that salt line offends him. Like it, it, it doesn't even occur to him. But Malcolm doesn't believe, and so 
doesn't have the same prohibition to crossing the line. Is that too reckless even for Malcolm or is it on brand for how Malcolm behaves? And again, I think it comes down to the question of what do you believe? If you believe in the power of exorcism and the power of possession, then this is reckless. If not, then not. Can I remind you of the very first episode of season one? Malcolm cut off a guy's hand in order to get him out to save him from a bomb. So that is about as reckless as I think one can get. I'd say this is on brand reckless for Malcolm. He's testing a theory and that's what he defended it as. And JT was definitely not on board with he's like, man, what are you doing? This was Malcolm doing what Malcolm does, testing his theories, testing the hypothesis to see what the outcome is. I think if Malcolm really believed in the idea of possession, he handles that scene differently. He doesn't go and antagonize and poke so so forcefully as he does. Because at some point, he believes that something bad is going to happen because he jumps back across that salt line with the, with the right quickness. Yes. Poor, that poor, beautiful music stand gets destroyed in the melee, but Norman got some speed when the demon is upon him. What is the takeaway here then, Sheila? Is, are we supposed to believe that in this world that demonic possession is real? Norman acts the way he acts there when it's upon him. Jonah has this knowledge about the darkness inside of Malcolm. I say, you know, I see it in you too at the end. Is the show winking and nodding at us that like there's something here or can it all be, you know, explained away with science? Well, they don't really explain it all with science because they, they, there's no accounting for how Jonah and Norman's voices. I mean, to me, they sounded identical when the demon voice came out. It sounded identical to me. I, I actually went back and listened, you know, one after the other just to hear it. So there's no accounting from science of how both of them saw into Malcolm saying that, you know, there's evil inside of you. Th there's enough left on the table that you're just like, hmm, it, it, it could be. But it, again, I think it depends on if you believe in possession or not. I think it's up to you to decide. Which is, the, you know, the best stories, right? Where where you don't necessarily get a definitive answer and it is a subjective instead of objective. So because it really lets your mind kind of wander. So, Mike, as a Reformed Catholic, Malcolm has this dream with Sister Agnes praying in the garden. Did this shake loose any memories for you? No, this scene had importance for me because of the Ainsley aspect of it, which we'll discuss when we get to talking about Ainsley. For me, it conjured up some imagery of the biblical story from the Gospels where Jesus is in the garden and he has his agony in the garden right before he's crucified. This is where he resigns himself to the faith that he will be crucified, that he will die, basically fulfilling the prophecies. Side note, this is also where he's reported to have cried tears of blood. So yeah, so that's what her praying in the garden. It was a very beautiful garden. It was at nighttime, which is supposedly when this story happened in the Bible. So getting some Catholic school education out of this one. <laughs> Your parents must be very proud that their tuition that they paid all those years to St. Francis Prep is uh, finally paying off and to St. John. So, you know, there you go. And, and meanwhile, how many times have I said I'm a retired bad lapsed Catholic so far? <laughs> well, so here is the thing. Uh, once it's in you... Once the catechism, once the power of Christ is in you, it's very hard to shake loose. I regularly come up with things and information that I only know because of things I learned, you know, two and a half decades ago from my time in Catholic school. And again, I, I started a prep and I was I was an unwashed heathen. I was not baptized as a child. 
Oh, really? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't actually, I didn't actually be, uh, there's a great story here. So my two sisters had been baptized as, as uh, Lutherans, um, with my mother had been Lutheran, but no, there was no church going in my childhood. And so uh, because of family infighting, when I came about, I, I was quite a, quite a distant mistake birthwise, you know. Don't call yourself a mistake. You're a happy accident. Well, there you go. So, yes. Yeah, so, so my, you know, life had changed. Family was frayed. So I grew up, I was never baptized or anything. I go to Catholic high school. I am on the football team my freshman year. There is a preseason mass in the little chapel there prep for the football team. Everyone's getting up. They're going to do the Eucharist. I get up. I go to do the Eucharist. The priest hands me a Ritz cracker. I eat it. I don't know what the fuck is happening. I go down. The, the whole thing. I attend the mass. Go about. You go about the day. I go home, telling my parents about the day, telling them about the wafer that they gave out, a little snack that they gave out at the mass. And my father, who had, you know, my father is 100% Italian and had grown up, you know, Catholic, pre-Vatican II Catholic, you know, the Latin and all that shit. He, his face goes white. He's like, you can't take the Eucharist. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you're not Catholic. He's like, you're not even baptized. You're... <laughs> He's like, you can't do that. I was like, I didn't know. No one told me. But it was a real problem, though, not taking the Eucharist in a Catholic high school when everyone else is standing up was a real... Yeah, everyone's getting refreshments. So you got nothing. It was a real awkward thing. Once I was aware of it, it became a real awkward thing for the next four years of high school. I had no idea you were never baptized. Yeah, no, no, no. It wasn't until I was in my mid-20s I actually eventually did the uh, the RCIA, the Catholic initiation for adults. Basically, you get baptized and confirmed all in the same ceremony around Easter. It's like Catholic night school, basically. It was yeah. Catholic night school. Exactly right. And it was awesome because then I had like 26 years of sin washed away. And it was fantastic. I mean, I was I was feeling pretty good in my mid-20s, you know, with my clean slate. So, yeah, so I, I really came to Catholicism in a different way. And I came to religion in a different way than most other people who are kind of really grow up with it. I don't know what the point of any of that side tangent was, but now you all know. But it a really was fun. But you know a really interesting fact now about your co-host here and, and religion. And basically, like, I was raised Catholic. My parents are Catholic. You can imagine with a name like McGann, Irish Catholic. So the guilt is high. So church was a regular thing for us. So I actually moved away from the church in college. And to and moved to Australia. You you literally went as far went away from... to the land of heathens, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since we're talking about religion and, and what people believe, I think the conversation with the Monsignor and Malcolm at the end was really interesting because Malcolm asks, and he asks in a very earnest way, do exorcisms ever work? Essentially, the conversation is they do, but... They do because you have to believe that they're going to work, which is where Malcolm runs into problems. And he has this great line, which probably for a priest is probably super dismissive, where he says he talks about he wishes that he was a believer because the idea that he could just confess his sins and everything would be better uh, is really attractive. And I think that's a little... Uh, reductive on the idea of of penance and and the right of contrition uh, and the and the whole idea of asking God for forgiveness for your sins. I think I think Malcolm is showing a little bit of his science snobbery around the idea of penance and what it's all about. But the priest kind of comes back at him. It's never that easy. Nothing's that easy. You know, he 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 doesn't smack him on the back of a head and call him a schmuck. He, he does it in a more loving way than that. He says, you know, nothing. 
nothing's ever easy, you know, and that priests spend most of their time just listening to people uh, because that's really what it's about. It's about unburdening your soul to someone. It got me thinking this is when Jonah's having his starting to have his freak out when the lead poisoning is really getting upon him at the back of the church. He's, he's starting to focus on Sister Agnes having lead poisoning and it's sending him in a spiral. Malcolm kind of felt like he was maybe going to unburden his soul to to the Monsignor right then and there. Did you get the same vibe? Was he about to go have his first confession? I think he was going to confess in some sort of way just to get it out there into the universe and, and shared into the, the zeitgeist. Some sharing of something, maybe not an out and out confession, but there was going to be, you know, like hypothetically, if, you know. Caroline and I are covering Your Honor right now, Showtime's limited series, Your Honor, starring Brian Cranston. Without going into that show too, too much, Brian Cranston's character is doing a lot of bad things right now because he's trying to cover up something that his son did. His son killed someone very accidentally, but for whatever reason, and, and the machinations of the show, Brian Cranston, as his father, is trying to cover up that crime and in doing so is doing lots of bad things uh to do that and is super stressed about it there was recently an episode two weeks ago two weeks ago now um where he found an old man with dementia and the old man thought he was someone else from his past and brian cranston because it it fit his need at the time kind of played into the role that he was this guy from this old man's past and the old man who is still wise, even though he has dementia, picks up that there's something wrong with Michael, that's Brian Cranston's character, and and tells him, if you can't bury your soul to your family, then I don't know what's what. There is this feeling of relief. Brian Cranston sits down, and he's an amazing actor, so you really buy everything he's going through here, and he unburdens his soul to this old man who can't give him any advice, has no fucking idea what he's talking about, will not remember this conversation in, in an hour tops. You, you get the feeling it is super cathartic for brian cranston's character when he sits down and just says it out loud everything that's happening kind of out loud and this was very much that moment for malcolm i felt like where this priest again will never will never come into malcolm's life again he's not he's not a member of this church he doesn't probably go to any church you know they're unlikely to have another exorcism case or a desanguination case or or religious religious sacrifice uh, ritual sacrifice case in this church again probably everyone's dead i mean <laughs> you know <laughs> uh yeah so there's something very freeing about confessing your biggest fears to someone who will be non-judgmental to you and i think that's really what malcolm is pulling up on who can he talk to without feeling like he's going to be persecuted he can't talk to his mother. He can't talk to Gil or Danny or JT. They think he's borderline weirdo enough, as is. He can't talk to his father because his father would be like, yes, yes, you know, like very emperor of the dark side. Um, yeah, so who can Malcolm turn to? Well, he can turn to this priest. Who can turn to this priest who literally just said, my job is just to listen to people tell me their their worries that's exactly what malcolm needs and i think it's interesting that this comes up in this episode where we also learn that malcolm hasn't been attending therapy for some time malcolm's time with his his therapist in season one was always very productive maybe not always the best healthy for him because it usually triggered things for him but it was cathartic in a way right it was a time for him to unburden himself so he's missing that at a time when he needs to be unburdening himself most well, I also think that, you know, Malcolm stopping therapy and having the moment um, where he thought he might confess something to the to the Monsignor also lends itself to 
to why he would have stopped going to therapy because he can't confess a crime to a mental health professional, right? And without having to have that reported, right? You can't confess something. You can't confess a, a crime without action being taken. I mean, there is, you know, client privilege, patient client privilege, but at the same time, like you can't, I don't think, I don't think you can say anything about a crime and have it be protected. You can tell your lawyer you've committed a crime and that is protected information. You just can't tell your lawyer you're going to commit a crime. That's not protected. That's the kind of borderline. I don't know how the protection works with with mandatory reporters and stuff like that in, in the mental health uh, field. I don't know that Malcolm would have even said, I think he would have used metaphors. I don't even think he would have said what happened with Endicott and, and what he's gone through with Ainsley and chopping up the body. I, I think he would have used metaphors with that with the priest, but I think still the act of saying it out loud would have still been good for him i think it oh i taken, absolutely agree i think agree. it would have taken just, a weight off him i also think maybe he didn't go to therapy because he didn't want to confront it he stopped going to therapy because he doesn't want to be in a position of having to think about it constantly and not be able to talk about it because he's not going to say it out he's not going to give the specifics out loud but being there is going to conjure all of it for him so i agree so in keeping with the um the the professor shaw you mentioned him just a second ago Malcolm gets Friar Pete on the phone right through his dad and uh, needs to know everything about lead poisoning and then an exorcism. That's an awful lot of Latin to have to recite. Why not just put Friar Pete on speaker? It's because of the theater of the thing that it wouldn't translate as well over the phone, right? Think about that about that scene. They were essentially saying it was less about the specific words. Well, I think Friar Pete probably thought it was about the Len. But the idea between Friar Pete and Martin, what they were trying to get through to Malcolm on the phone, was that you have to believe it. You have to sell it. You have to put right. some— Right, Martin says you have to sell it. Right, Okay. That's a fair enough point. You have to put some real mustard on it. It's not enough because it, this comes into what do you believe, right? If if the idea is this person doesn't really isn't really possessed by a demon, but just thinks that they are and is so acting because they believe so truthfully that they are, then they're going to need something really dynamic to snap them out of that belief, right? And there's something very different, you know, hearing the power of Christ compels you versus the power of Christ compels you! You know, that's like... Thank you for giving me the little lead so I didn't have to jump in. hit my head or something <laughs> right yeah so i think it's a very different feeling there joe the the actor who plays jonah which i don't have off the top of my hands i i i, I think he did a great job here at the end but not more so than when Malcolm actually begins saying the right and he begins speaking in Latin. Uh, he uh, Jonah stops in his tracks like yes, mid mid frozen. frozen and 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 again no matter what you believe whether it's real demonic possession or just a a, a mental disorder uh, that mimics the uh, possession the words the 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 right the ritual of the words had an effect and as Malcolm sells it he is able to kind of cure this man of of his ailment. I mean, it requires hitting him with a candle to to finish the rite. But most <laughs> of the work is done by the theater of the thing. And I think that's why it wouldn't have worked the same hearing it over the phone. Yeah, and Malcolm strikes me as someone who probably does know Latin, so he could probably recite it pretty pretty close to the the mark. Yeah, Malcolm was able to recall off the top of his head all of the related the disorders and things, you know, kind of uh, happening here. There's another, you know, he's talking about Martin. There was another phrase he used. 
Uh, he had the possessive trance disorder, but then there was oh, recurrent identity disturbances mm-hmm. when he's talking about um, uh, Norman and about the voice changing. It's in my blood. It's in your blood. And he's recounting that whole thing. He's talking about he knows about it. So it, 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 it would strike me that Malcolm probably already knew the the gist of the Latin exorcism mask because he strikes me as a reader. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's the other thing about religion that's always fascinating, too, though, right? It's the rituals, the rituals and the practices. It's so consuming. You can see how people get lost in it because there's something very comforting about ritual. There's something very comforting about doing the same thing over and over again. It's why the rosary is so effective. It's it's just a it's a it's a meditative exercise. And the Catholic Church above all churches is robust with ritual but ritual indoctrinates you it makes you feel invested but that has a double-edged sword though because if you become so invested then you also then believe in things like demonic possession if if you open up that cellar door and you're already invested in the belief structure it's it's an easy path to walk down into that darkness just before we move off of Malcolm, I, you know, I, I just want to hit that he had some really nice moments with JT in this episode and, and with Danny, you know, when he says to JT, whenever I say I'm fine, I'm lying. And the fact that he, he mentions that he had been trying to call him. Listen, when you think about all the stuff Malcolm is dealing with, the fact that he's reaching out and trying to build these friendships and trying to be a good friend to both of them it really hit me as just nice character development, right? Think about how far they've come. Think about how far JT and Malcolm have come in. We talked about this in the Frank Hartz interview. I don't want to talk about it too much here, but I think this is the show using just one or two lines of dialogue and really showing us that this is a team that has real friendships and relationships now behind it, not just kind of coworkers. I, I think it's really great that they're showing how they're just trying to move the friendships along through just normal interactions. Like it's, it's not feeling forced, like Malcolm trying to call JT to see how he's doing. It didn't feel forced. So I like how like organic their friendships are developing and the effort that's being put into it. When people ask why is this show as good as it is it's these small moments the show does the big moments really well too it does it does the storylines they're really fun and they're they're interesting and they're engrossing but it's the it's the little moments of character development that whether or not you realize it that's why you care you may may not realize it but when you stop and you think about when you think about tv as much as we think about tv when you stop and think about why you care about a show why you think you care about characters it's those moments because you're getting a window into their life it makes them real it makes them kind of come off of the page it makes them come off of the screen into your life in a way that feels very real that's a really great observation there was another moment with character development here that you just touched on that i wanted to ask i guess a couple of questions about the conversation between malcolm and danny when they're when she takes him home after he falls asleep they're talking about the goya painting in his living room I definitely saw some attraction there on her part when Malcolm tells her that Goy is a romantic and she smiles, you know, it's that smile that you can't help when you like somebody. Do you think that Malcolm is missing her cues or is he just uncomfortable about getting close again to somebody after what happened to Eve and maybe what happened with Endicott? 
I think he feels something more than friendship for Danny. Maybe not as much as maybe Danny is is exhibiting and feeling for him. And again, Danny is interesting right now, right? Because Dan, Danny is, I, we talked about this last week about Danny and with Gil and inserting himself into Gil and Jessica and how that may be related to her feelings for Malcolm. I think that all really holds true. I think the scene is another kind of piece in that Jenga puzzle trying to unravel her feelings for the Whitleys. But I don't think he's missing her cues. I think he just has so much other shit going on right now. He just trying to keep her at a friendship level because I think that's all he can handle right now. The bandwidth is maxed out. If not Eve coming into his life and the shared trauma throwing them together, I think him and Danny move to move much further down the path of a relationship. I make no apologies for the fact that I ship Danny and Malcolm, but I also think the show is doing a good job of not doing a Ross Rachel will they won't they nonsense either. They're building a very organic relationship. So if and when it happens this season or in a future season, it'll feel well earned, but I'm fine just enjoying the ride. He's socially awkward in some ways for sure but i think he i think he's picking up on it and i think he mimics those feelings i think he feels those feelings i think he's just so burdened down by other things he's not in a very romantic place right now tell me about the goya painting because i know i'm i'm a real uh, troglodyte when it comes to goya and and to art in general oh so i did some research uh <laughs> you always do you're you're our art critic here on pot clubhouse so i'm like the detail person i was just like hey what does that mean um you know i even looked up like the salt with norman in his room i'm like like is there any like you know rhyme or reason to the patterns i couldn't find anything but but salt is definitely a thing that is used for um keeping demons at bay like you know like i know that it's put across windowsills it's put across doorways and things like that so i looked at the goya painting because i was like you know that has to be a real thing if they're gonna call attention to it in the show so it's actually called christ on the mount of olives which houses the the garden of gethsemane where the agony in the garden takes place which we talked about earlier which was the the dream sequence with sister agnes that conjured up that image for me Look who's getting her money, the money's worth out of her Catholic school education. Yay, mom! Uh, here's another little side tangent into uh, my world. One thing, you handled Garden of Gethsemane very well. It is the hardest word to pronounce in the Bible, and also not nearly as much fun as Abaddon the Destroyer. Oh, yeah. If, if Abaddon, I, I can say that all day, all night, but, you know, Gethsemane, that... Uh... That trips me up. I got to think about it before I say it. I'm a huge musical fan. Uh, I'm a populist, so I really like Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. And it, Andrew Lloyd Webber oddly has two very religious um, musicals in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, which is a popular uh, musical around here in the Caputo household. Uh, my son, Tom, big fan of it. We listen to it constantly. But uh, I've also showed him and gotten him into uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. And, and so, yeah, again, it shouldn't surprise you that a lapsed Catholic isn't doing a traditional religious education for my son, but he knows some high points and he knows them in a musical based context anyway. And there's a whole garden of Gethsemane. God, it's a fucking hard word to say. Uh, scene Gets, there. Gethsemane. 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 In the garden. <laughs> In the garden where he has this, like, where he's really in his feels, there's, there's a great scene that takes place in uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. So if you're looking for a musical adaptation of uh, Jesus's story, go check out Andrew Lloyd Webber's, like, 1972 rock musical 
Jesus Christ Superstar. That plays into not only the painting, but it also takes you back to the Sister Agnes scene where uh, he has, uh, you know, the vision of Ainsley in the dream. So there's a, there's a lot of going on with Agony. What do you think the significance of Agony is in this episode? It's coming to grips with maybe things that you don't necessarily want to face. Malcolm is being told an awful lot that there's evil inside of him. He's being told it in his dream by his sister. Um, he's being told by wannabe demons. JT has his moment where he doesn't know what to do about the, the worsening racism that he's experiencing within the department. And it, it's all about things, I think, that you you don't necessarily want to face and coming to grips with with how you're going to proceed. There was a long sigh there, Mike. <laughs> I think that's just a good take on it. I think I think it's just a show being kind of subtle and also not subtle all at the same time uh, by having the you know the recurring theme operating for different characters on different levels. So I, I think again, I think it's just good writing on the show's part. First, it was clever of me to like pick up on all this like you know Catholicism wow, and imagery. Uh, apparently, we're at the toot our own fucking horn part of the well, show. Because so. most of the time, no, because most of the time, like so much stuff like goes by me. So like yesterday, I was recording the stand with Paul, and he said, you know, did you catch the Gary Sinise, you know, homage to the '94 miniseries when they said like run for us, run? I'm like, no. <laughs> so, so when I can bring something you know of worthwhile discussion, I'm like, yay. Well, we think you're a valuable member here at Pod Clubhouse, and we think you had lots of great content. Before we move off of Danny, I want to hit up her story because it relates into then JT's story, which I, I want to move to. She is talking to Malcolm, and again, this is this is just another good scene about their friendship. This is this is development of their friendship that she is sharing with him in their apartment. They always have really good talks when they're at Malcolm's apartment for some reason. Uh, Danny is a person that you get the feeling probably doesn't have many friends that she is opening up on like real life worries and concerns about she you know i get the impression jt doesn't also like jt probably speaks to his wife about his day but uh, these are people that keep their life probably very bottled up don't have a lot of girlfriends you know to go chit chat with or whatever watching her open up with malcolm here and talk about how it's bad out there um and this is you know on the racism angle she gives some real talk that we all need to hear i think because i don't know that we can hear this enough in different medium the idea of JT and her, she says, have always known how bad it is out there for people of color. It's just that people are starting to notice now and talk about it. That's a really powerful point that gets lost in the shuffle. It's not like racism is new. It's not like you don't get systemic racism overnight it's 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 an institutional kind of thing and we definitely talked to frank about it and you'll hear in the interview he's got feelings about it because it's something that he lives with in his personal life and then feels a responsibility to handle it responsibly in his professional life you know we're obviously focused on jt's storyline that he's going to but it's allowing danny to look at what jt is going through and reflect openly about her own issues because she is she is a black woman which then is a is another 
layer on top of it. She's not just a person of color. She's a female person of color in a police force in a world that has systemic racism in it. So she's got an important point of view that we shouldn't lose focus of. And I'm glad that the show is not losing focus of, you know, she, she had a comment to Malcolm about it last week. They have a a little more in-depth conversation about it this week. I'm as curious to see where her story goes as the show tackles this storyline as JT's. Um, I think JT has the more formal storyline about it, but Danny is obviously wrestling with her place in the world also. I've seen in comments, we're in Facebook groups with the show. Uh, we're on Twitter talking about this show. We're, we're big, longtime Prodigal Son fans going back to season one. I saw a lot more than I expected criticism of the show talking about the BLM movement and and the George Floyd inspired things that the country went through and bring that into the show. I, I saw a lot more criticism, a lot more criticism than I expected that the show was incorporating this into the storylines. Is that a fair criticism? Should should TV be pure escapism, not dealing with real world issues? Or is this a good and important story that TV needs to be telling? I honestly think that this is a story that needs to be told time and time again. My son is in second grade and he came home on Friday, the Friday before Martin Luther King weekend, which was just passed. You know, he was he was horrified to learn that this man who did such good work was killed because of the color of his skin and what he wanted to do to what the change that he wanted to affect. It's beyond 50 years since that happened. And we haven't really evolved much. It's still a dominant conversation. So I think this uh, this show is doing a good job in giving us escapism from COVID, right? So we, we talked about this last episode. They're not really, there's basically, this is a post-COVID world. So we're escaping that aspect of it because this will, you know, go away at some point and, or at least diminish. We have vaccines and we have protocols and, and whatnot. But the, the racism issues that the show is dealing with is, is longstanding. It's it's systemic. You said it before. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not going to go away overnight. TV has a responsibility to to forward this to bring this conversation forward because the only way that you really understand something is to see it over and over again, over and over again, and be exposed to it in many different forum, different media. To start to see people in different lights, to maybe walk a mile in someone else's shoes. This show has a responsibility to bring that forward because of how diverse the cast is. They they can do this with a degree of credibility that maybe other shows can't do. The show is is telling a story that features three people of color in police roles dealing with serious crime stories. I think it would be unrealistic for the show. I don't want to say negligent, that seems excessive, but it would be it would be a real missed opportunity if the show wasn't taking a crack at trying to tell an important story that we, like you said, we all need to hear. TV is a powerful medium. TV has the ability to start conversations, to further conversations, to give us a mirror to our real world that allows us to talk about difficult issues that maybe we can't use real world terms in about because it's too fresh. So TV allows us to have a conversation where we can reach maybe some understanding with each other and get to know each other better without the necessarily sensitivity of 
real world issues. Uh, this came up when we were doing the Hollywood podcast, uh, another show uh, Caroline and I covered at Clubhouse, because it, w- it was talking about all of the issues of of Hollywood in the modern age, the the Harvey Weinstein of it all, the racism that people of color and uh, the gender and sexual orientation, uh, homophobia that that pervades our world in Hollywood. It, it tackled all of those issues, but by putting it in a fictionalized 1940s, was able to talk about it in a way that allowed people to have a conversation about the topic without having to bringing in the uh, talking about Harvey Weinstein, talking about all of the monsters of Hollywood and all of the things that they've done. And the show putting it in a fictionalized setting allowed that conversation to be had without the sensitivities or hair trigger reactions that using real world examples would have. And in the same way, I think Prodigal Son is doing a good job by bringing up police overreach and bringing up racism and bringing up the the continued struggle that people of color have to work harder than white people to to achieve the same kind of goals in life. I think the show is doing a good job of that by using in-world, not forced very organically raised issues in the show, it allows us to kind of have the conversation about it and see, can we reach some kind of understanding and all move all move forward together without having to use, you know, trigger incidences from the real world in it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And then also something you said earlier, that these are characters that we've grown to love and the development of them is important because that's what we really like about a show. So two people that you know and like, and in some ways, like you trust their their relationship, you trust their personalities at this point, having this deep conversation, it, it it's another way to give validity to a situation. If you agree that JT is a good stand-up guy, a good honorable man and a good cop, and you believe the same about Danny is uh, is she's a good cop and she is an honorable woman, then you're going to be invested in their story and you're going to take the time to understand their struggle through their point of view because you're invested it's it's why character development is important if you didn't care about these two if they were just side characters or they just popped in very occasionally you didn't have any feel for who they are no one would give a shit about what they were going through it would be a boring plot line like why are we bringing in these people we don't even fucking know of them but we do know these characters after this is now our 22 of prodigal son um should have been our 24 uh fucking covid um yeah so after 22 hours we do know who jt is we do have a feel for who danny is we do care about them we do we've had glimpses into their lives we want to see them get through whatever their struggles are the same way we care about malcolm and want to see what his struggles are you know it's the show is not just about malcolm the show is about a larger group of people Right. It's his universe. Right. And I think that I think the writers have done a good job of making us believe making us care about that universe of characters, not just Malcolm or Martin or Jessica. I don't want to talk too much about JT's story this episode because we do get a lot. uh, We do get into it a lot with Frank in our interview. 
we have to talk about how egregious it is that he doesn't get the backup call. That when he calls for backup, he is denied backup, that he's accused of impersonating a cop and, and told that that's a punishable, a finable offense. Uh, I got to tell you, Sheila, I was incensed at that scene. Like, again, it's a fictional show, but I was still incensed at the scene. Had they not shown Gil shouting into the phone about when my team calls for backup, you bring fucking backup. I, w- I would have been really upset at the show. I would have had a totally different feeling for this episode in a very negative way. I'm glad that Gil went to bat for the team. Oh, same, same. I, I mean, my heart, like, again, it's a fictional show, but I mean, you're invested in these people. And, you know, we talked to Frank Hartz and then watch this and then watching this episode right after that, seeing what his character is going through, being told that he's impersonating a police officer after knowing that he's just the stand-up guy. He's been doing this job for 10 years with, you know, merit and distinction. Agreeing with you that if Gil didn't do that, then it just, then what are we here for? If he didn't do that, if he didn't rip them a new asshole to say that, you know, oh, we need backup, you, you give it. Not having that would have definitely damaged my opinion of of Gil, I guess. I mean, that's it's just harsh, but I mean, what they, wh- where they're going with this is harsh is real it happens um they have to deal with it so i think the fact that they went that far with the storyline with gill defending his team just it just goes to show how deep the writing is and how serious that they're taking this and they know that this is definitely going to be a big subplot for the season going forward we're not going to get a resolution in one or two more episodes i don't think But this whole thing with JT, it just feels bigger than the responding officers from episode one. Um, I get the feeling that this is uh, spreading throughout because it's not necessarily they don't necessarily work out of just one precinct. Could this be jealousy on the part of some of the officers that JT was made acting head of major crimes while Gil was out? It does seem targeted at JT in a very specific kind of way. At least this episode did. Last last week's episode with him being a, a plain clothes cop in a in a shadowy uh, alley when officers are rolling up to a crime scene seems much more there's there's a black person there so obviously they're the criminal kind of like racism aspect to it tonight seemed very personal at jt and as far as we know jt hasn't escalated this he hasn't other than pushing the cop and and being worried about hitting the cop and maybe that has spread so there's there's a target on jt because he uh because of the incident in the alleyway but uh, we've heard he hasn't actually escalated this he hasn't formally filed a complaint against the cop that you know put a gun in his face he hasn't done any of that so it seems very personal and aggressive on these dispatchers that they would be targeting him this way unless there is something larger at play here it does seem to go beyond just shitty racism which which is in and of itself enough and bad so i like the idea that there is maybe also some professional jealousy there because you know that's a big deal i mean someone has to get appointed head of major crimes Major crimes in the NYPD is not just Gil, Danny, and JT, and whatever Malcolm is. It's more officers (laughs) than that. We only get to see these three, but there are more officers that work major crimes. And so I I think that's an interesting, you know, thing to, you know, a little nugget to put away to see if that if that pans into anything down the road, for sure. You know, we definitely want to wrap up here. There there was this whole Jessica Gil aspect that 
didn't really move that forward. I, I think I think it's an interesting question of does Jessica push Gil away because she's she's trying to protect herself from getting hurt? Uh, you know, obviously she was influenced by overhearing his conversation last week with Danny that the Whitleys may be cursed, and she brings that up to him. I mean, she confronts th- that to him after ghosting him for most of the episode until he finally shows up. So, so the question is: Is Jessica acting here out of self preservation or? Is she, as she says to Gil, trying to do him a favor that we are broken, we are cursed people here, and you're better off without me in your life? You know, let me save you again. Go, please. That such a great line. Bellamy Young does such a great job delivering that line. But I, it left me wondering, what is Jessica's real motivations here? Is it is it you know self protection or is it really trying to be altruistic and worrying more about Gil's well being? Well, I mean, I'm going to be kind of, you know, gray here. It's kind of both. I mean, she's she doesn't want to get hurt. I mean, I think she was crushed by being confronted with the notion that her family's cursed and that other people think it. I'm sure she's cried herself to sleep how many times since 1998 that, you know, why does why is this the fate of her family? Like, what did she do to deserve this? And I'm sure that there was that that wallowing self-pity. But Jessica doesn't get enough credit as being a great mom. Right. She protected her children as much as she could from the the wrath of being a serial killer's family. So I think that there is a modicum of self-preservation here with her, but also in a way she doesn't want him to get hurt because ultimately there is something to them that other people don't understand. You know, the three of them, Jessica, Malcolm, and Ainsley together as a family unit are very strong, but they also don't have a lot of substantial outside connections. Like, I don't see a ton of friends from any of them. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. It's it's kind of both. I think that's fair because, you know, she is the one who has had Gil kind of by her side the last 20 plus years as she's tried to raise these kids in the shadow of the surgeon and and tried to also hold on to her family fortune as well as her standing in society and, and raise these kids to... She has a great line in this episode. She says, I don't meddle, I mother. And I, and I really do think she believes that. I don't know that it actually comes off that way. I don't know if that's actually sincere because i don't know how i don't know how self-reflective and honest jessica is necessarily with herself but i believe that she really believes those things i think it's very possible that it's both that she thinks she's acting in gill's best interest when in fact she's actually also acting in her own self-preservationist interest that the shadow of martin is 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 ruining her life and better to close herself off now than go down that road and be hurt by Gil because it's it's like it's like a, a defeatism, right? The idea that at some point this is all going to fall apart because of being having been married to Martin Whitley, so better just to nip it in the bud now. It it almost leaves her at the place where she can only ever be with people like a Nicholas Endicott, who is a you know sociopathic killer uh, in his own right. <laughs> yep. What is it about her that attracts these people? I don't know. And I don't know what that Tinder app looks like for serial killers. I don't know what the dating app looks like where you're just attracting like really, really uh, disturbed people. But Jessica must subscribe to it. I, this is my guess. So yeah. there, there's some like subreddit stuff going on in there. So I don't know. Yeah. So uh, speaking of Martin. 
Yeah, how have we not talked about him yet? Well, because I think we're kind of waiting for the end here. I mean, there's some there's some Ainsley stuff here, but but Martin had a real roller coaster episode. I mean, he's back in therapy at the start of this episode. He's talking about how he's never been more proud of his kids. He he works with Malcolm throughout the episode. He gets Malcolm at the at Claremont. Interesting how less reticent Malcolm is to going to Claremont now. And I think that's an interesting character development that he does feel closer to his father because he doesn't protest debate about going to claremont nearly as much as he did in season one you know like oh i know someone who drains you know drains his victims of blood and he kind of heads off the claremont yeah so martin's having kind of the episode starts with martin having really the best day ever he's got he's got wreck time in the in the yard sunscreen he's got his books back in in his room he's got his room back to himself uh he's never been more proud of his kids all for the wrong reasons but still he's never been more proud of them but but at the end malcolm malcolm lays him out and really stops him cold and he says you know i'm finally coming to terms with how much of you is in me this follows their conversation, their great conversation about brainwashing and, and possession that parents do of their children. But Malcolm and, and Martin is elated at first, but then Malcolm makes it clear that that's not a good thing for Martin. It's just a good thing for Malcolm. Because Malcolm knows Martin is a part of him, he can box him off, close him off, and leave him behind. Is that Martin's worst fear? The idea that his children or Malcolm specifically, would not need him, would be able to just let him rot, that he could be left behind by Malcolm? Is that is that Martin's worst fear? I think so. Malcolm had called him a narcissistic psychopath. I think it was in this episode um, early on when he's on the phone with him. And so being a narcissistic psychopath, because that's what he is, to be left behind, to be not needed, to be not the focus of attention, I think is definitely the worst thing for somebody who has that affliction to experience. Because we saw this in season one with Eve, when Eve comes to see him with Malcolm, and she tells him that he's a void, slaps him and walks away. And Malcolm goes dark with Martin for a couple of weeks. And Martin is in this frenzied state. He's calling, he's leaving a ton of voicemails. Malcolm says something to the effect of, you know, the worst thing to do to him is to leave him alone, that he needs to be needed kind of a thing. So I, I think you've hit the nail right on the head here with him, that that is the worst thing that Martin could experience with Malcolm is to be left behind. I guess moving on from like that conversation with Martin and you talked about like the possession part of it. Do you think that that made sense? What Martin says to Malcolm about parents possessing their kids through like through DNA, through shared traits. Like I had never thought of it like that. Does that make sense to you? I never thought of it that way either. And, but it is, it's a way of looking at it. I, I, I see it all the time. I mean, I refer to Tom as my 30 year old younger than me, my 30 year younger mini me. Uh, there's so much of me in him and I see it. Uh, Lord knows what other people see when they look at him. But in a way, then I'm possessing him, right? There, when, when your kids say things and it's your words coming out of their mouth, when your kids do things, or use their hands or make gestures in a certain way that's you coming out of their mouth or or mimicking something you do isn't that the same thing as possession isn't 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 that kind of what we how we talk about possession that someone else has taken a hold of your spirit and soul and moving you around i mean it's it it has a malicious connotation to it which 
doesn't necessarily hold true, but the act of it, the act of passing on who you are and in, and imbuing your child with those traits. I don't know that I would ever, you know, give a speech at a parenting conference and talk about it that way, but it's definitely an interesting way to, to look at it. Yeah, I would make that like your psychology platform if you're, you know, trying to sway hearts and minds at like the PTA or something. Yeah, I think you're going to get a really specific kind of clientele if that's your pitch. You know, like, you know, learn how to possess your children in e- three easy steps. I'm very tempted to be like, the power of mom compels you when um, my son misbehaves. Well, I mean, according to Martin, you only need to look as far as yourself, though, when your child does that, though. That's, that's, your, that's, your, that's your works, your great works being reflected back at you. There, there's been many times that I'm just like, oh, he opens his mouth and like me comes out. I'm like, oh, my God, I apologize in advance, child. You're, you're headed down like a, a path of nerddom and weirdom that, um, yeah, that only comes from my half of the DNA. Martin is looking for his own exodus at the end of this episode. The idea that Malcolm may be able to leave him behind as Malcolm gets mentally healthier really chills Martin to his bone. And he he's talking to Friar Pete about it. And Friar Pete lets him in on this Bible study group he has. And, you know, maybe they need to study a, a plan, uh, you know, of exodus for Martin. Lots of lots of biblical references for Martin getting out of the jail, which is funny because last week we were talking about how it seems like season two is the right time for Martin to go on his own walkabout out of Claremont. Um, now that he's had some, you know, yard time, I feel like I, I, I had this image in my head of of Martin showing up at a crime scene, you know, with Adresa and Danny and JT and Gil and Malcolm and then Martin just popping up there and being like, ah, so, you know, what's the profile? What's the case? And it's glorious in my head. And I cannot wait for that to happen. I really want that to happen. The question I have for you is, is that going to happen? Is is Martin going to get out now? We've laid the groundwork in this episode for that. And do you think, if so, is that something that happens really fast? Or does that become like a Shawshank redemption, a long time building? And, you know, we're going to be strung along for the whole season as we see him carving, you know, a hole behind a picture of Rita Hayworth. Uh <laughs> I, I mean, I did have to ask you prior to recording this, I asked if you had watched ahead before we recorded the last episode because you had this foreshadowing or this thought or this prediction that you wanted to see like Martin sort of like more out in the world helping Malcolm. And I was just like, did you watch ahead? You were like, no, just just, you know, your own sort of take on it. Do I think it's plausible for Martin to get out? It's not that likely, but he's very clever. Um, he's done things that we didn't think would be possible, like curing Jerry with, you know, the uh, the the plug. Please, but, uh, please, Jer Bear. Oh, Jer-bear. sorry, Jer, Mimi, Jer Bear. But if I had to guess which style Martin would take, I believe it would be more on the Hannibal Lecter side. It would be elegant. It would be smart and thought out. And uh, I don't, I don't see him down in the 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 pipes digging through the shit. I really just don't. If he gets out, it's going to be a Hannibal Lecter style. And again, if you guys haven't watched Sons of the Lambs, which apparently is my touchstone for the show. It's the second week in a row now. And when I think back, uh, second week in a row, I've mentioned it and I've brought a comparison into it. And when I think back to season one, there's probably actually a lot of co- comparisons for me there. Uh, Hannibal Lecter uh, basically gets himself brought into a case that requires him to be taken out of his maximum security jail cell that he 
he's kept in, which is all he needs to then, you know, maneuver himself into freedom. He he's he's let out into the wild and he's restrained. And there's a famous scene of him wearing a face mask and, you know, they do everything they need to do, they think, to keep him under wraps. But once they've taken him out of the maximum, maximum security of his normal prison cell, he's able to, to manipulate the situation and get himself free. It's a very elegant jailbreak that he does, and he never goes back again. That's the kind of style I see Martin also doing, that he gets himself involved in a case where this is all prediction now. We actually, I, I had not seen episode two when we recorded episode one yet, and I, we haven't seen anything beyond episode two at this time of recording. My prediction is that he gets himself put on a case or consulting on a case with Malcolm and the team that requires him to be removed from Claremont and have to go somewhere to investigate that his his special skills is not it's not going to be a situation where Malcolm can go to Claremont. He has to take Claremont to the case. From there, he finds himself in a position where he can maneuver himself to freedom. That's my guess. That's my feeling. That was always kind of what season two felt like for me because because we've seen so many different scenarios of Martin in Claremont. Um, I mean, and I'm I'm excited for the idea that there's this now network of consultations that he's contracting for cases with Friar Pete. And I think we're going to meet more denizens and residents of Claremont in the coming episodes, which I'm excited for. I like the I like the people of Claremont. I think they're an interesting bunch, but I'm ready to see Martin Whitley out in the world again and and kind of get a taste for what that world looks like. Well, they can't not go this way now because they've suggested exodus they've you know he's got a way out with friar pete with the bible study so i i think you're you're headed in the right direction let's finish up tonight's episode talk by talking about ainsley when martin when malcolm comes around the corner and sees her shinking the knives together and setting the table with the cutlery there's real fear on malcolm's face which is interesting because as right now he diagnoses her as having dissociative amnesia um, which essentially means that she has sudden amnesia gaps in her memory triggered by a traumatic event that's in a nutshell, right, what dissociative amnesia means. But it goes beyond just her not remembering. The idea of her having the knife and, and kind of having a gleeful look upon her face, there's real fear on Malcolm's face when he sees that. And and the fact that he sees Ainsley with a knife when he's having his Saint Ag- uh, Sister Agnes dream sequence in the, pre- in the precinct, uh, it, all of that is very significant for me. There's a part of Malcolm, I think, that fears Ainsley. Uh, Not what Ainsley knows or doesn't know, but actually fears her in a way maybe he also kind of fears his father. Absolutely. I think the the fear that he saw was that, you know, he, he remembers what she's capable of, even if she doesn't. So I think that there's definite fear there. Yeah. The fact that she is aware that there's very little of the night that she remembers, I think, really is starting us down this path, this path, this girl in the box esque path that we talked about last week. I think, yeah. I think we're still moving that way. Did anything from this episode take you off of that? You know, so she's actually kind of scarier because she doesn't have active memories of the night. She looks at the knife, she looks at Malcolm, and she goes, "Is this what you used?" So there are memories there. They're repressed. It's, um, you know, dissociative amnesia. I did some more research. It's like the uh, the trauma protection plan for the mind. Your mind basically shuts out the trauma in such a way that it, it houses them and they can be reached through therapy or they could just come flooding back, which is actually kind of scary because it can be triggered by something in the surroundings, A, such as a knife that was used in the killing. 
So I think that there's a lot there that the the writing team can can explore. Girl in the Box, the that that kind of uh, of notion, um, the fact that Malcolm is still scared of her. <laughs> um, th- there's abilities there that she has that that are now repressed with this memory. So it's it's going to be interesting because I, I think it will come back, and I think there's going to be there's going to be a lot more to it, and I'm excited to see it. Because I'm murdery. <laughs> you you are murdery. <laughs> I think uh, the last thing I, I'd like to leave people thinking about is there is this very sweet moment with her and uh, with Ainsley and Jessica at the end of the episode where she eavesdrops on Jessica and Gil's conversation. And damn, there's a lot of eavesdropping that goes on the show, especially among Ainsley and Jessica. These two are always eavesdropping on other people's conversations, just as a little side tangent. Anyway, very sweet moment where she, you know, Jessica had referred to herself as as maybe broken and with when she's talking to Gil. And so Ainsley comes in and says, you know, you may be broken. I may be too. I'm not moving out. Right. Because that was the, the whole the episode begins with the idea that Ainsley is going back to her own apartment and Jessica is even helping her pack and seems very okay with it anyway so the idea that ainsley is now going to be staying in whitley manor has this ulterior uh, ulterior aspect to it where she is going to continue to live in the exact same space where she committed this brutal murder so the idea of her amnesia being uh the gaps in her memory her amnesia being filled in by flood of memory coming back to her would be less likely to happen if she was to remove herself from the house and going back to her apartment where no grisly murder happened. But now she's going to continue staying there. I think that makes it ripe for the possibility that she will continue to have flood of memory rushing back to her as she stays in the space the same way she looked at the knife and wondered uh, aloud to malcolm if that's the what he used to to kill endicott and cut up endicott she's going to be in that drawing room she's going to be sitting on the couch she's going to be standing on the carpet in the place where the the memories reside in her what she did and she's going to continue in that space i mean it's very sweet that she wants to stay and help her mother not be broken and heal together but there's this whole other aspect of if we're happy with ainsley not knowing what she did her staying at whitley manor not a great idea just uh, one you said something sweet that you know ainsley said to jessica so one sweet thing that i thought with jessica um and ainsley tonight was uh, over her tr- her gill troubles her boy troubles with gill i just thought that it was funny when she says you know does gill let uh, let you wear his turtlenecks when she says this to jessica it just made me laugh because you know gill and his turtlenecks are very much a fest a fashion statement in this uh in this show yeah and uh i'm sh- i'm sure jessica would love to be snuggled up in some gill turtleneck so yeah just to have like his smell on her mm. so Sign me up. It was very sweet. It was, you know, there was so there's Ainsley and Jessica have, again, just a, the show doing a good job. They have their own really well-developed dynamic that's completely separate from and not not including Malcolm in their dynamic. Ainsley and Jessica, because the amount of time that they spend together living together, um, have a really, really well-developed dynamic. And this was a particularly sweet moment because they do butt heads so much. You know, Ainsley is being very go-getter in her job and and reporting on things that Jessica maybe wouldn't rather her not reporting on. Um, you know, they, they've butted heads a lot, but this was a really sweet mother-daughter moment for them to share but also then because this show can never just be sweet has this tinge of 
you know, I wonder even if Ainsley wants to stay in the house because maybe she wants to remember Maybe she does want to fill in the gaps of her memory of that night. Maybe there is something eating at her or gnawing at her that there's something not right, that the story that's been planted in her head by Malcolm and everyone else isn't exactly right. And so maybe maybe there is an ulterior motive here. Like, yeah, I want to help my mother, but also there's a mystery inside this house that I need to solve about myself. Right, and she's an investigative journalist, so she's not going to let that sleeping dog lie. She, she, I mean, she's a dog with a bone when she gets a juicy, her hands on that juicy story. So <laughs> that takes us to the end of our discussion of episode two of season two, Speak of the Devil. Um, but definitely stay tuned right now because we have our fantastic exclusive interview with Frank Hartz, who plays J.T. Tarmel. Uh, and that interview is coming up right now. Joining us tonight on The Surgeon's Files is J.T. Tarmel himself, Frank Hartz. Frank, thanks so much for coming out and joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you hanging in the new year? Yeah, you know what? We're, we're doing quite well uh, as a family unit, uh, despite everything that's going on. We found our, our uh, corona rhythm. It's a, it's a definite tightrope walk, especially if there's you know a, a more than one person in the house. It, all, it becomes crowded real fast. Yeah, my two-year-old's taking over. Did the, my, I don't even have a chair anymore. He just took it. <laughs> my my chair. He took my chair. Ate up all the food, all the emergency supplies. He took over my Zoom name, as you can see. It says Hendrix. That's so funny. Nothing is sacred. I mean, I got a cat during quarantine time, and the cat lays everywhere I'm supposed to lay. You know, it's in my work chair. It's in my couch spot. It's everywhere. It's like I can't even win against a goddamn cat. Cats are going to do what cats are going to do. Cats are much like two-year-olds. Yeah, right. <laughs> not, not too much different. Not far off. So, uh, you know, we're into the second week now of season two of Prodigal Son. We're so excited you guys are back. Prodigal Son is a little bit of normalcy for everyone out there. It, you know, being able to sit down on a Tuesday night and watch a show, it makes it feel like the world is not on fire a little bit. So thank you for that. Let's go back to the beginning, though. Tell us how you actually got cast in this show. I mean, you had a bunch of your TV credits so long. You have a lot of stuff in your resume. Take us way, way back uh, to when you were cast yeah no that that's a, it's a great question i did it the old-fashioned way uh i auditioned and you know i would worked with sam and chris uh previously on a show called deception and and we had a great time and i read prodigal son and i thought that it was just a really fun script and the diversity of the the uh police force really uh, excited me a lot and anyway did my audition and you know they they enjoyed it too and went out to the west coast met all the good people at warner brothers and fox and just yeah earned the earned the role the old-fashioned way is this a genre that you're otherwise into like if you were on your couch are you looking and finding the first 48 or other kind of like true crime things Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I literally, all that I had on my television growing up, well, I wouldn't say all, but I had a lot of other things, but a lot of it was unsolved. Robert Stack, Unsolved Robert Mysteries. Stack. <laughs> Robert Stack, Unsolved Mysteries. I'd watch it with my grandmother and we'd vibe off of that. You are a man after my own heart. <laughs> I think I even like, I, I like remade a couple of uh, of the uh, uh, narrative portions for, for my wife one point to like creep her out just and, play, and, and screw with her. Like me, not, not me as Robert Stack, but me like doing Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> And uh, it was just like a stupid little, um, uh, you know, uh, experiment. And she got a she got a kick out of it. I think we almost got divorced, but 
<laughs> Overall, it was mostly a kick. No yeah. one could wear a trench coat yes. quite like Robert Stack, and that's a real high bar to try and pass if you're going to go put on bits. The trench coat. Yeah, so anyway. I, I love to have on, like, a ID channel. But also, at the same time, listen, I I grew up, I wanted to be uh, a law enforcement, I will say a cop, but then that grew from wanting to be a cop to FBI to Secret Service, all these different things until I realized that, well, I could get shot and die. And then I was like, you know what? I said, I said, why don't I just, you know, why don't I let the the braver people go out there and do those jobs and i'll fake it on on television as best i can but i said all that to say like that didn't take away from the fact that i i've always enjoyed the the work of what it means to be um, an investigator i've played probably i don't know man probably over 20 cops over the years and try to bring something different to each one of them and jt was a great opportunity to to explore something completely new well this season and last season and so many seasons <laughs> going forward so yes exactly. we hope we hope many more. Frank, when crafting a character for Prodigal Son or any of the other roles that you've played, do you spend a lot of time crafting a backstory? Like how much of who JT is on the page is you versus the script writing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, it's one of the great things about going through the slog of like four long years of training at a, at a place like Juilliard is that they burn into your spirit the need to basically ask questions about a character until there are no more questions left to be asked. I mean, to literally come up with all the annoying and exciting backstory that you can you can discover. It's almost like being a great actor, if you can pull it off, is similar to being a great detective. You really do have to uncover uh, every, uh, overturn every rock and, and, and ask all the questions until you solve the character, so to speak. And so, the way I do that is, yes, by Chris and Sam will tell you. <laughs> I sent them like pages and pages of backstory to the point where they were probably like, you know, dude, like, I think we, we get it. And, you know, no, they, they weren't like that at all. They were totally receptive. And like, uh, you see a lot of that stuff, I think, that's made it to the page. Stuff that I just made up for JT based on the things that they had already written and also things that, yeah, are, are maybe connected to who I am as a person. But really more so the things I sort of made up uh, about JT and what they made up on the page. Two more pages and you would have had a treatment for the backdoor pilot for your own spinoff show. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's been written and I have I'm about six drafts in. <laughs> nice. 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 Gotta take those notes. We'll cover that when that comes out. Exactly, exactly. You know, you mentioned Juilliard, uh, but you're not from New York, but you have such a New York vibe as, I mean, Sheila and I are both lifelong New Yorkers, born and raised here. You have a real New York vibe. Do you, did you like the city? Did it like stick with you or get in your bones a little bit? You know what? I am a guy who grew up in small town, Illinois, two hours west of Chicago, Right on the border of Iowa, 10 minutes down the road from where Ronald Reagan was born, a very red area of a blue state, white mother, Irish Catholic, black father uh, from Mississippi. My mother's from Greenpoint, Brooklyn, originally. My dad's from, from Mississippi. They met in Illinois and had me. So I'm like this this sort of like... <laughs> You're your own melting pot. <laughs> I am my own United Nations in one body. And so I can fake it like the best of them, basically. And, and not, to, not not even fake it. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker now, man. I'm a New Yorker because I came here out of high school to go to Juilliard, and I've been here a few years longer now in New York than I was in in Illinois. So that's that's where you get that New York vibe because, hell, I'm a New Yorker. Listen, I mean, it's not about where you're born. It's about what you do with it once you get here. That's right. It comes off of you like like the best of us, and, and you are. 
are the best of us. I, and I love it. We're, we're happy to have you. Uh, not that I that speak on true. behalf of all New Yorkers, but. Uh, <laughs> I think you do. I think you do. Well, I do now, God damn it. So. <laughs> so back to the show. In season one, you know, yeah. JT was often the voice of reason against using Malcolm in cases. He was just too kind of weird for real police work. That was always JT's vibe. You could fill a, a museum with the amount of times there is a picture of Gil standing between JT and, Mal- and Malcolm. Did you notice an arc in your character warming to Malcolm over the course of the season and as we enter season two that maybe he accepts him more as a part of the team? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, the, he definitely started off as a, a skeptic for obvious reasons. And by the end of season one, he definitely, definitely, uh, had, I guess you can call it warmed up, but really more importantly, just to grew to respect what, what he had to offer. I mean, the one thing JT learned in the military was that it doesn't matter uh, who you're in the trenches with when it comes to their politics or their personality. It only matters whether or not they can get the job done and, and save your life and, 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 and others. Going into season two, it's, it's, it's a bit more uh, of a cold environment. I mean, you have, uh, you know, he's, he's a, JT's a black man, post-George Floyd, uh, playing, a, you know, he, he's, a, he, he's a cop, you know, in a world where it's not the most popular thing anymore. And also, he, of course, as you know, has this thing happened to him where he's, uh, uh, even though he bleeds blue, he's, he's profiled for the color of his, his skin by a fellow officer. And it's the racial tensions and the COVID world that they're all living in now that sort of tends to force people into these bubbles uh, to the point where they don't always vibe off of and communicate with each other uh, the same way they did before. But the great thing about having wonderful writers uh, like we have is that they're still finding ways for us to communicate uh, with each other in, in, in heartwarming and heartbreaking ways, even though we're being continually pushed apart, pushed apart, pushed apart with uh, all of the uh, craziness that's going uh, due to all the craziness that's going on in the world. So that as an actor, that's an interesting struggle to have to push up against, you know, this this desire to pull away from society, pull away from each other but at the same time still have this need and desire to come closer together as an NYPD unit to get this job done and to solve crimes. So let's just talk a little bit about that storyline. So when you got the script for the season premiere, what was your first reaction to seeing that ending with JT being profiled by those responding officers? My, my first reaction was uh, the, the Zoom meetings and the conversations we had after George Floyd was murdered, me, Chris, and Sam, uh, were, were heard. Good. You know, they were heard. And, and that doesn't mean, and the biggest thing that was heard was, that my desire was not to have, you know, to solve racism in, in, in two episodes of television or wrap everything up in a neat little bow uh, and move on, but to address it, have the conversation in front of, in front of people on, on screen, but not come to a clean and clear conclusion so fast to let it burn throughout the season until we figure out. Uh, you know, where we need to land. And that is where we're at. And that's exciting to me. When I saw that on the page, I said, okay, all right, they get it, man. They know what's happening, you know, and this is a great start to the conversation. But at the same time, there's the deep desire to still hold on to that thing that JT loves so much, which is, you know, living life with equal parts, humor and, and drama. Right. And and still be a cop, you know, and I think it's an important thing uh, at the end of that first episode in the this, this season premiere where Gil comes in and he looks at you, he looks at Danny, probably, you know, talking about himself, I would hope a little bit in, in saying how there are good cops left that and, and he's looking at two of the best. And, and I think that's an important counterbalance 
to the storyline, the idea that, you know, you have the JTs of the world out there uh, on that side of the blue line and you have your Dannys and, you know, doing good work and not, and not, uh, you know, being representing the worst of humanity kind of thing. You know, the show is definitely walking a fine, uh, a fine line, but I think doing a good job of having kind of a balanced conversation about it. Well, thank you, because it was also exciting to have the other side of that is seeing him as the head of major crimes at the beginning of this season, you know, uh, you know, missing Gil in every moment, but at the same time that this young black man is competent in that position. It doesn't always matter in the end when it comes down to, the way you're perceived by certain parts of the of the, the world and, and your community. When we were talking about the episode on in that podcast episode, we talked about how JT's storyline just within the one season premiere episode was a real whiplash. You know, we're super happy for him at the start of it. He's been promoted. He's, you know, super awkward with Ainsley on camera, but he's the acting mm-hmm. head of major crimes. And then at the end of it, you've got this horrible profiling moment where he's having a, you get a gun shoved in his face. It, it was, it was a real whiplash moment over to go through over the course of an hour, which is totally. so reflective of, I think, what a lot of us feel out in the real world um, today. That's right. That's right. You know, TV is a powerful medium. It's got a lot of influence over the national conversation that we all have in our real lives. Do you feel any added pressure personally to ensure that the show is handling the conversation respectfully, accurately, constructively, that it that it's not just doing it or taking advantage of it? Do you, as an actor, as a black man, do you feel um, any kind of extra responsibility mm-hmm. for yeah. that? Uh, 100%. 100%. I lost sleep over this, over this. I was like, how am I going to do this? Post-Floyd, I'm in between season one and season two. I'm coming back to a show where I play a cop. Uh, I'm a black man in America. Not the most popular thing in the world. Like, how are we going to do this? You know, and I, after having those conversations with Chris and Sam, I was reassured and I felt comfortable in the, in the, in, with the, the, the flavor that they gave, which was what you see in 201 and 202. They they heard me. They and they they started that conversation. But yes, I do feel responsibility, even though I don't have control over. I do feel responsibility to share my thoughts, my feedback more than I ever would before about not only what's happening in one uh, two hundred one and two hundred two, but what's happening going forward. You know, and I also feel like I'll be received, and that I have been received, and. It's not perfect and it's nothing it can't be perfect and I wouldn't expect it to be. Right. But I, I have this feeling that the conversation will continue and we'll come to a just as just con- a conclusion as we possibly can and um and move on in the world as best we can. And uh so yes, I do feel heavy, heavy weight on my shoulders to to not only portray this this these moments and this this character properly, but to make my voice heard. Uh, in the writer's room and, uh, you know, just sound the alarm if I think anything is off. I I don't want to look back on it in, you know, 10 years and say, oh, man, you should have said more or spoken up or, and so I haven't. I say everything that I think and, and, you know, Chris and Sam and, and the team, the writing team are very good about listening to that and integrating that. And if they can't for whatever reason or feel like it should go a different way, they let me know why and how and, we all we all working together very very well very well considering the circumstances of the world i mean you wouldn't even know that that the stuff in the real world is happening the coronavirus and all that we got this season 2 done because everybody pulls their own weight from the top down to the sides and in every direction and that's how you have a show coming back 
for a broadcast premiere January 12th in the middle of all this craziness. Coming back from the the storyline with the what you were just speaking about, so we saw tonight an escalation in JT's story with JT being denied backup at the church. And JT has a line at the end of the episode where he says, I have to protect my job, my family. I know I'll take care of it, which sounds horribly ominous. Can you talk to us about JT's state of mind at the end of these first two episodes? And what is he thinking about doing? Yeah, it's a great question. He's in between a complete rock and a hard place because he's in, in, in one side, he wants to speak truth to power. On the other side, he does have a family to think about and a job to keep. Uh, and also think about, he has to think about his safety as well, because, you know, no telling what can happen physically. As you can see, he calls for backup and that in that situation happens. So he knows how it looks when it goes bad, badly, because he's heard the stories before and seen examples. And he also knows what in his heart of hearts, what he, what he needs to do, which is, you know, pursue justice. So I think what you see when he goes around the corner and has that moment where he breaks down for a moment, uh, uh, for a minute is, is a man who, who doesn't know which way to turn, but I think is, is, is definitely leaning towards pursuing justice. Uh, whether that takes a whole season or it's, it's, it's wrapped up sooner. He doesn't, it's a, it's a crossroads. It's a total crossroads. I think we're all kind of sitting here holding our breath a little bit, waiting to see how it works out. And, and, you know, like the team has his back and you want to see that, but God, he's such a good guy who has got like the best intentions. So we're all just kind of sitting here watching, hoping, you know, the very best shakes out on it. I think I've only got time for one more question. Cause I know you've got a tight timeline. Just getting back to something a little less serious. Let's you know, like quickly talk about exorcism and the devil. Yes. You, you, yes. Me- you mentioned having a Catholic mother upbringing. Yep, you, know, yep. you, you get this script, you're dealing with the devil, you're in a church, you cross yourself in the episode before you go in. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like a good exorcist-like story, or are you not so much with the demons and the power of Christ? I, I like a scary story. I like a creepy story, and therefore I like a good exorcism story. I can't tell you, there was not enough room on my skin for all the goosebumps that formed <laughs> when we were shooting this thing. And I'm not scared easily I, i'm just not maybe because i'm slightly insane but i don't my wife will tell you i don't get freaked out easily this thing gave me the willies man uh on the on the irish catholic side literally i went to catholic school i was an altar boy i did all these things on one side and on the, on the african-american side i'm alternating sundays uh you know in the baptist church screaming and bouncing in the aisles uh catching the holy ghost for four hours uh, straight and so if you want to talk about a guy who was able to connect to uh, you know, religion and, and, and mysticism on many different levels, uh, and and find the, the 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 most joyous aspects, and all the way over to the the creepiest. You're, you're talking to a guy like me because I have I have seen some weird and and wonderful things, uh, having been uh, in in that in, in those dual upbringings and those dual worlds, straddling that line, you know. And um, I think maybe it's it might be maybe it's the Irish side. I don't know that that just loves the, uh, the, the the creepy stories, the ghost stories, and um, you know, like I'm, I'm a big you know when, when it comes to plays, I'm a big Connor McPherson fan, and I just uh, uh, yeah, my grandmother used to tell me the creepiest creepiest. My Irish grandmother would tell me the uh, great grandmother, sorry, the, the the creepiest stories, and and I and I got a thrill out of that in sort of a masochistic way. Frank, I think you and I have been raised in parallel universes. <laughs> yeah. With a name like McGann, Irish Catholic all the way over here, and the creepy ghost oh. stories. It is an Irish 
folklore tradition, like the banshees, the creepier, the creepier, the better. Right, right. And you don't know, you can never tell when they're telling the truth or they're what's making it What's BS and what's, what's honest, exactly. And it just makes ah. scare the bejesus out of you. And it does, it does. You, you nailed it on the head. You know then, you know. I know. Oh <laughs> all God. I'm missing is the Baptist side. That's all I'm missing. <laughs> hey, look, never too late. Yeah, now I'm somewhere in the middle, man. I'm just like, you know, I just, I'm just like, you know, I had, I've had enough. I, I'm just like just floating around in space now. Uh, Frank, thank you so much. I'm, I'm getting the uh, gotta go signal. So thank you so much for oh, coming no. out. I know, you know, we got a long season though. And I'm, uh, Come back. I'm, 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 I'm I'm hoping that we get you back again for another episode down the road. So, I expect to be a member of the clubhouse soon. You've got oh, you've been inducted. We, we've got jackets. Uh, you've got an open door invitation. You come on anytime you want to talk. This has been so fun, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, talk to you soon, Frank. Thanks so much for coming out and joining us. And everyone out there, thanks so much for listening to The Surgeon's Files. We'll see you next week. Okay. All right. I just want to say thank you again to Frank Hartz for, you know, spending time. I wish we had had more time with him. He has a great little, uh, a great little uh, outburst there at the end that he, uh, he wants uh, to be able to come back to the clubhouse and we would love to have him anytime. He was so much fun to talk to and really had great insights about the character. I'm embroidering his jacket as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, there was one thing that we brought up in the interview, and I just want to bring up again here because it was so ominous. The 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 line he says to in response to Danny, he says, I have to protect my job. I have to protect my family. She says, you know, just be careful. He goes, I know I'll take care of it. That line is so ominous. I asked Frank about it. I mean, obviously, he can't give too much away with the spoilers, but I, I want to leave you guys with this thought. The I'll take care of it really triggered this worry that he is going to go on some kind of vigilante justice streak, that he is going to go after this specific group of officers that may be harassing him. And that would be the worst possible outcome, I think, for JT to go down that road. But understandable if he feels like his life and his job and his family are being threatened in any way, that path would be attractive to him. But I'm very worried that that is a path that he may go down when he gets into his darkest moments. And the show is all about our darkest moments. I'm very worried about the idea that JT takes justice into his own hands. I'm hoping that Malcolm does a profile on him before that that happens. Uh, yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up this week's episode, Sheila? No, I'm just excited that everyone gets to hear Frank Hart's interview with us and uh, hope you come back next week. Same here. Thanks so much for listening to The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. And if you could head over to wherever you get your podcast from to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast and leave us five stars, that would be greatly appreciated. And is a fantastic way for other people who are like minded surgeon phylites to enjoy the show as much as you do. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. 
Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.